0: I'm Mark McLemore, and this is a special edition of Arizona Spotlight. We're exploring the complexities of youth mental health in our community. We'll hear from a woman who lives with bipolar disorder, doctors who try to navigate treatment and support, and AZPM's mental health reporter, Gisela tellis The conversation is a companion to Arizona Public Media's documentary, Not Broken, that debuts tonight on PBS 6 at 9 p.m. In the film, producers Tom Klesby and Gisela Tellis present an unflinching yet hopeful portrait of youth living with mental health challenges. The participants represent a range of backgrounds and experiences. Some are youth of color, some identify as LGBTQ, some have survived sexual abuse, poverty, bullying. But despite the obstacles they've faced, all are fighting to live their dreams. One out of five young people And about 18% of all adults live with mental illness of some type, according to the National Institute of Mental Health. That reality can be hard to talk about and listen to. This conversation may not be appropriate for all listeners. To explore what mental health looks like in southern Arizona, here's Andrea Kelly.
1: Thanks, Mark. The statistics tell us that mental illness is common, and that means most of us know or interact with people who are dealing with mental health challenges. And one thing we uniformly hear from those who advocate for mental health care is that there's a severe stigma that makes this harder to deal with than, say, another diagnosis like cancer or MS. So let's talk about it. I'm here with Angel, who has bipolar disorder. Like other illnesses, it can be different for everyone who has it. Would you share how you experience bipolar disorder, Angel?
2: Absolutely. So I have bipolar disorder type one, which is uh, has a little bit more of the manic side included in it. So bipolar disorder is a two-sided coin. There's the manic and the depressive side. And so when I wake up in the morning, the first thing that I need to do is to take my morning meds after having taken my evening meds before I went to sleep. And then it's really trying to understand which side of the coin I'm going to be on for that initial morning, whether it's going to be that I feel like I can be a doctor, an astronaut, a musician, a politician all at once, or if my existence is meaningless. So it's basically hoping that there will be a balance in between the two so that I can be a productive member of society that day and move forward without having a panic attack, without having to really be concerned too much about whether or not I've uh, slept enough that night, whether or not I ate correctly the night before, the day before. If it's a Friday night, I'm having to determine whether or not I'm going to drink any alcohol, which is a huge concern because it can definitely shift my mood one way or the other. So it's really just constantly analyzing and reminding myself that I have a mental illness and that every single thing that I put into my body, whether it's sleep or a substance or, you know, even just the exhilaration of doing something new and challenging can affect my mood.
1: You share your story in schools and you include mental illness in the novels that you write and you participated in our documentary, Not Broken. Why do you choose to share your story?
2: A couple of years ago, I had to come to the conclusion that I could not come back from an episode and just go balls to the wall, that I had to really maintain a balance and focus on my mental health. And in doing so, I realized that my mental health was the most important thing to me. It wasn't about saving the world, it wasn't about achieving all of these things, these multiple degrees, whatever it might be that my goals had been. It was making sure that I stayed stable enough to be, you know, once again, productive. So in focusing as mental health as the most important thing to me, I tried to figure out, well, is there a way that mental health can be important to others as well? And so even though it sounds kind of simplistic, a kind of life mission was that as long as I'm stable enough to do so, I can show myself as a success story to others that maybe have a mental illness or who have experience with a loved one who has mental illness to say that, hey, there are some really amazing things that can be done by people who have mental illness regardless of the 50% functionality that they might have otherwise.
1: Also here with us are two mental health experts, Ole Teenhouse and Patricia Harrison-Monroe. Ole's chairman of the University of Arizona's Department of Psychiatry, and Patricia is vice chair. They both work with patients and teach. And Gisela Tellis is Arizona Public Media's mental health reporter and co-produced the documentary, Not Broken. It's a raw look at teen mental health. Let's continue the conversation. And these questions all came from our audience. Ole, what do you think is the most important for people to know about mental illness?
3: Well, it's very important to understand that mental illness is an, a, a problem that it can affect any one of us. It's not a sign of a character, of weakness, or of a... Uh, pre-existing biological problem or whatever. And it's a problem that affects us, that does not define us. In other words, somebody has a mental illness or has a behavioral disorder, as the saying now goes. It's not that you are say, a schizophrenic. It's not that Angel is a bipolar. And that, I think, puts it in a perspective that it's a problem that can be tackled, that can be treated, that sometimes can be cured but most of the time it's a more chronic problem just like say diabetes or high blood pressure is that people have to learn to live with but that does not define their existence but it's a problem that uh, has a uh, an answer for them on an individual level just like Angel shared with us.
1: And Patricia what do you think is most important for people to know about mental illness or mental health?
4: I think. It's very important for um, anyone out there to understand that mental illness is treatable, that there is hope and recovery is possible, and that the earlier they receive treatment and um, provide uh, service, uh, that the earlier that they receive treatment and bring their children to this treatment, appropriate treatment, the better the chances and outcomes will be. I think access to care is a significant barrier to um, receiving that kind of uh, appropriate treatment, but it is nevertheless something that all parents, all caregivers, should make sure that their children receive. What should adults,
1: especially those who don't regularly interact with kids, know about youth with mental illness?
3: Ole. Ole. I think the first uh, first importance is that they're aware of the possibility of mental illness when a child develops different behavior patterns that concern them. They shouldn't jump to conclusions, but there is signs and symptoms that sometimes suggest that there could be a mental illness at play. And that's very difficult sometimes because kids, as they grow up, of course, change in their behavior patterns. But if a parent becomes concerned about, for example, isolationism, that the kid who used to be very social with peers, friends, and so forth, uh, changes that kind of uh, very basic behavioral uh, pattern, then that could be a reason for concern. Excessive weight loss, for example, are there changes in eating behavior? serious sleeping changes and again i would emphasize not just one time that the kid sleeps in obviously or one time that the kid doesn't have an appetite should call anybody cause anybody to run to a psychiatrist but if these behaviors persist over time and give the parent concern they should entertain the possibility and i stress that the parent's concern is critical because parents by and large, are reasonable people who would not overreact, hopefully, just because a teenager is sulky. But if it worries them, it's probably a good sign that there's reason to worry.
5: And Gisella, More generally, um, also, I would say that an important thing to know is that mental illness is not one monolithic thing. And young people who are living with mental illness are not all the same. And I think some people might have an image in their minds of who that person is or what they're like or what's going on with them. But as we saw in the documentary, we featured young people who came from all kinds of backgrounds. I mean, they represented different racial backgrounds, different socioeconomic circumstances, different geographic locations. They had different experiences, different conditions. Um, They are all different from each other. And so we can't generalize about, you know, the people out there, you know, this unseen group of young people living with mental illness, these are individuals with really individual circumstances, and, and it's a really complex story for each of them.
1: And Angel, you were diagnosed at 16. What would you say if you had a parent in front of you asking, you know, what do I do or how do I know? what What's what's the right thing?
2: I think one thing that is really important to remember that can perhaps be generalized for anyone experiencing mental illness is the experience of shame, and I think for myself at 16 my parents were shocked when i came forward and said that i was suicidal and that i needed help because i had become very good at wearing masks and i'm still very good at wearing a mask and so that is one thing that adults who maybe don't have personal lived experience with or have not come in close contact with youth who have mental illness there is definitely an element of wanting to hide it of wanting to make sure that they aren't disappointing their you know their adult um mentor or parent whoever it might be the fact that it's something that um is th- that is uh, shameful that that it's something that feels like if you're feel like you're inferior because your mind needs some extra help the fact that there makes you less of a full person and so I think that's one thing that can perhaps be generalized and I'm mm-hmm. it's, it's a very complicated thing and how do you address that how do you make someone feel like they're not less than they feel that they are. It's uh that's where mental illness gets really complicated. And Patricia, did you have something to add?
4: Yes, I think um, stigma uh, is not just something that other people have, um, but uh, parents uh, have stigma as well. And I think um, certainly we come across in our program uh, quite frequently uh, across parents who um, had hoped for uh, quite some time that the odd behaviors that their children might be uh, presenting with would. Would go away over time. And so um, the fear that if, in fact, their child is diagnosed with a serious mental illness, that their child is doomed, that the future for that child uh, is gone forever, uh, and their hopes and their dreams for what their child might be able to accomplish is gone, um, has kept um, many parents from wanting to acknowledge that, in fact, they do see that there is a change in their child behavior and that probably their child could use help that the family itself cannot give.
3: I wanted to just follow up on Angel's point and a little bit on Patricia's as well. Uh, Angel, when you mentioned the shame, you know, my concern is often, there is almost a collusion. You know, the kid doesn't want to talk about it. They feel ashamed of it. And the parents rather not hear about it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And to break through that can be a very tough challenge. And that's why one of my responses would be that for parents to communicate with their kids and not think, oh, well, that's the millennials now. They stare at their iPhone all the time or whatever, but if that kid has changed and is no longer talking with the parent, well, bring it up and say, is there something wrong with you? Is there something going on that I might be helping with you?
2: The best thing that can be said is really that um, I I hear you. I'm here for you. I want to learn what it is that is going on with you, and without judgment, and just Correct. really being open and saying, speak to me. And you know, it's a it. I had when I told my parents, they were literally on the other side of a screened-in porch. Like I could not face them directly, and so it is very difficult. And uh, but as long as it's just I'm here to listen, is really the best thing that can be said.
5: And I would add that you know, as we worked on the documentary it was the young people who had that connection and that communication with their parents who, I mean, that was generally, that was definitely like a a common thread. Uh, All the young people were concerned about talking to their parents, they all felt like they were letting everyone down by being ill, or that they were going to, that they were uh, going to disappoint their families um, but the ones who were able to to reach out and still say I need help or still talk about what they were going through and the parents who were willing to to listen to that um, those were the situations where where we saw people you know really flourish and find help and do well. And-
2: In that same regard, I think parents need to be aware that there are support systems for parents, for family, for friends that when they are dealing with someone who has a mental illness, there is self-care that's involved for the caretakers as well, whether it be parents who are mourning the child that no longer will have that same future, whatever it might be, there is definitely this entire circle that needs to be, you know, maintained that it's not just the child who necessarily needs to, to seek help and be open with their feelings, but also the parents.
4: And I would just add that particularly with the increase in uh, suicide that we're seeing among young people, it is particularly important um, that parents and caretakers and teachers uh, and friends and other family members pay attention to what is happening or what might be happening to a young person that they are that they know uh, and reach out to them. It may not always be the parents who are the ones best to see it, um, but Other individuals should not be hesitant to alert maybe the parents that they see something that maybe the parent is currently not yet aware of. These are questions
1: our audience asked, and we got more than one about the role of social media. Um, So I want to pose to all four of you, what is the role of social media in the proliferation of youth with mental health challenges? Um, Maybe a follow-up, what can be done by parents to help
4: their children with this? Well, I think social media um, plays a big part in all of our lives these days, uh, particularly so for the young people. Um, The bullying that we uh, hear about so frequently is of real concern. However, uh, social media is also a way to connect a young person to others that may be struggling with some of the similar issues that they are. However, what we're seeing with um, some young people who are, more severely mentally ill is that it really increases their uh, social isolation and um, their inability to interact appropriately socially with others.
1: Patricia, when you're working with patients, do you kind of look at their social media use and interaction or lack of on a case-by-case basis? Or do you... How do you handle that?
4: Yes, actually we, we we do that on on a regular basis. We talk to them about how much they're spending um, kind of staring at a screen, whichever screen that might be, uh, how much uh, they are interacting um, outside of their home uh, with others uh, so that they can, again, increase their level of socialization with, with other young people. Um, it is definitely uh, something that we are mindful we talk to them about um, some of the concerns about spending too much time uh, with social media and um, we, we have a policy, no cell phones when we do group or individual therapy, they have to be turned off.
1: Angel, do you use social media and if so, how, how positive, negative, how does it work for you when you're, when you're um, dealing with your mental illness?
2: sure the one major thing that i did different in my recovery process after my last major episode a couple years ago was being involved with a community of people who share similar experiences Fortunately for me in this area, I've been able to do that with actual groups where I meet on a weekly basis with um, support groups. However, outside of that, there's also the social media element, whether it be Instagram or writer's groups online that are, are, you know, focused on people who have mental illness that can share similar experiences, whether they're writing about something that happened to them when they were, you know, 5, 10, 12, whatever it might be that I can then relate to. From my own my own past, so I do think that the social media, the magic of the internet, gives us a resource, a community that did not necessarily exist even five years ago, five ten years ago. But it definitely for for me the isolation. I can see how that can also provide a false sense of interaction or a false sense of community when it really is beneficial to me to be able to meet with people face to face. So it's it's a. It really is helpful in one way, but I can also see how it can be damaging in another.
1: And Ole Tienhaus, chair of the University of Arizona Department of Psychiatry, what's your take on social media and well, mental health?
3: Well, yeah, like like most technological innovations over time are just uh – a little bit before my time when television came along, we had some discussions about that, I'm sure. Uh, the two-edged sword, you know. I mean, as uh, Angel just mentioned, it's it's a terrific tool to connect with uh, certain resources that might have been otherwise difficult to reach out to. But what we see as clinicians more than anything, at least speaking for myself, is the, the problem that uh, the, the illusion of connectedness uh, tends to uh, lure people into a sense that they're, that they're okay when really the, all the friends they report are Facebook friends. And that is a serious loss because you cannot live your life virtually, as we know. So to the degree that the technological uh, uh, tools uh, tend to encroach on real-life experience, they can really interfere with kids in the in their growing up when they have to learn how to deal with the real world around them. So that's a that's a concern that we t- try to address in in all our therapeutic ent- encounters, I would say.
1: And Patricia Harrison Monroe, also of the U of A Department of Psychiatry.
4: I would just encourage parents to become more technologically savvy and understand the kind of social media that their children are using because it is also obviously a place where children can be victimized um, and they think they're talking to a friend, but they're really talking to a potential perpetrator. So it's really important that parents are also involved, um, not just uh, understanding how to text, but understanding what other different platforms uh, of social media would uh, expose their children to.
0: There are resources available at azpm.org notbroken if you or someone you know needs help. This special edition of Arizona Spotlight on mental health in our community is a companion to the new documentary Not Broken. The film debuts tonight at 9 on PBS 6, and features teens and young people living with mental health challenges. We'll be back with more of the conversation after this break. Thank you for joining us for this special edition of Arizona Spotlight. We're exploring mental health in our community. The discussion features Angel, who lives with bipolar disorder and post-traumatic stress, mental health reporter Gisela Tellis, plus two mental health experts, Ole Teenhouse and Patricia Harrison-Monroe. We'll return now to the conversation guided by Andrea Kelly.
1: Let's move to the topic of medication. Um, What role does it play in treating mental illness? And I will also ask Angel for you to share your experiences um, in medication and mental illness. Who wants to start?
3: Ole. Yeah, I think that uh, falls sort of very much into my area of of, uh, uh, mental health treatment, because psychiatrists are still the ones who usually prescribe Uh, psychotropic medications. And uh, I certainly do this myself, and it's a very useful adjunct tool that we have. You know, if you think back like a few decades, a lot of people were actually confined to institutions who are now able to function outside institutions who would not have been able to do so at a time when all we had was, you know, electroshock and cold water. And so uh, the uh, advent of psychotropic medications has helped a lot of people with uh, mental illness get a chance at functioning in society. I think what the problem with medications is that we sometimes overreach. We over- estimate what the medication can do. We have no medication in psychiatry that cures mental illness. I think that's the best way I can put it. We have medications that ameliorate symptoms but then it's up to the individual and often with the help of a therapist, with, often with the help of a recovery coach, of their social milieu, of their parents, you name it, to really capitalize on the suppression of symptom and pick up on developing a meaningful life.
1: Angel, your experience does it does it uh, correspond with what he's saying?
2: Absolutely. In in short, so medications are one of the things that I feel is most beneficial for my form of treatment. Now I have been on certain medications where at, at when I've discontinued them, I've gone through major withdrawals. There are definitely certain you know real toxic type of uh, repercussions from taking the medications. And then there are also the physical side effects that come along with taking them, where you have to weigh. Okay, so my mood is fairly stable, yet I have such vertigo and nausea that I can't function on another level. So it's really trying to determine what what is best. Can um, I'm paying attention to the psycho you know the psychoactive properties of it as far as. Um, Helping my bipolar disorder or is it affecting me so poorly that I can't really function well? So I actually went through a medication change just this last week, which is incredibly anxiety provoking It's one of those things where it's I have to wait a couple weeks to make sure that it's affecting me properly And what way is it going to take me? Will it tank, you know, my my relatively stable system at this time or will it help me? Which which way will it go? And not only that there is kind of this allure, especially with people who don't have the lived experience that you take the medication and you're better. You know, this is the kind of system that we live in in this country is like medications make you better. And so if I'm angry or I'm sad or, you know, I'm unhappy about something, my dad will say, oh, uh, so, you know, did you take your medication today? And it's like, well, yes, I can be happy or sad like a normal person. And so there is definitely this disconnect between what the medications can actually do and, you know, what they're expected to do. Have you always
1: used a combination of medicine and therapy?
2: Yes. Uh, medicine and therapy has always been the best method for me. And not only that, but also really making sure that I have the correct diet and exercise as well.
1: And Patricia, is that is that a common
4: combination? Yes. In fact, the research shows that the combination of medication and psychotherapy is really the most effective long-term uh, intervention for many uh, mental health disorders. Uh, one cautionary uh, statement that I'd like to make is that it's very important for individuals uh, who consider starting on psychotropic medication to get a full uh, physical as well as the psychiatric evaluation. Sometimes, and this may be due to a shortage in terms of psychiatrists in um, Arizona, here certainly in our um, county, um, that people choose to Um, present some of those problems to a primary care um, physician and then have that individual who's not a specialist um, make some general recommendations around medication. Uh, Psychotropic medications are very powerful um, and really should be provided I think under the care of a psychiatrist. Some might um, work once the individual is stable uh, to have um, uh, primary care physician follow up and maybe write um, renewals prescriptions but there really does need to be uh, at least a yearly um, full evaluation by a psychiatrist to ensure that the medication is still working the way it should um, to um, bring new combinations Uh, of medications to bear um, based on some new research that PCPs generally are not really up to speed on. And so I think that's a really important part of this as well.
2: One problem that seems to exist with the psychiatric healthcare, care, um, especially in our country, I'm not really familiar outside of our country, but um, just knowing through friends and people with whom I work is the fact that there is a different language that psychiatrists speak than patients speak. So if I'm experiencing certain symptoms and I go into a doctor and I'm trying to convey what I... Um, you know, what it is that I'm feeling and what I might need from them, there is, there are far too many psychiatrists who read off of a chart and say, oh, you're feeling something in this column and you're feeling something in this column. That means you get this magic drug. And unfortunately that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's really difficult as a patient to find psychiatrists who are ready to look at an individual patient as a puzzle, as a puzzle to figure out, because mental illness is one of those things that is frankly very uh, specific to an individual. So it's not as easy as that to just say, oh, well, you have similar symptoms to this person and this med worked for this person. So it's um, it's far too often um, that perhaps psychiatrists are too stressed with their workload or they have too many patients or perhaps they didn't receive adequate training, but um, the fact that the patient is not able to speak the same appropriate language as far as what medications really do, what um, you know it's it it does cause a problem. So there need to be more patient advocates, frankly, and people who can understand. And even though it's a troublesome thing to have someone who goes in prepped with WebMD on their, you know printed out articles for the psychiatrist to say, "Hey, this is what I think is going on, There is definitely a part of mental illness that because it makes, in my experience, makes me feel inferior. It means I'm going in fully trusting the doctor. And I had to learn to get over that. I had to learn to trust in myself prior to going into the doctor in order to say, hey, this is perhaps what I need.
1: And Gisela, tell us, our mental health reporter here at Arizona Public Media, um, you've been covering this for years. So you must have heard about access to medication, difficulties getting it, or in rural areas, access to care, um, period. What have you learned
5: over the years about some of these challenges? So. What I've learned is that um, is not to discount the small stuff. So I think that that, uh, we forget that, say, if you're living in a rural community, um, something as simple as not having a reliable vehicle can keep you from getting to appointments. If there's not bus service, you can't make it there. Um, If there isn't a facility that has a specialist who knows the specific condition that you're living with or some of the symptoms that you're dealing with in your community, Um, You're going to have to go really far away to do that, and that costs money because that takes gas. Sometimes, you know, in the case of of our documentary, you know, we had one participant who was living in a very rural community, um, and she had to eventually seek treatment four hours away. Uh, in a place where, you know, it was it was an ordeal for her family to visit her. Uh, it was dif- difficult for her to get there. Um, and it was extremely expensive. So she is still paying off medical debt from that time. And that was quite a few years ago. Um, even now, just to sort of to main, you know, she, she's found recovery and stability, but she maintains this, you know, she sees um, a variety of specialists and she sees them once a week and she still has to drive hours to see them every week. So um, there, there are issues around cost. Um, there are issues, you know, because people who who don't have the means to just afford whatever uh, the best possible treatment is, might not get that best possible treatment. Um, And then there are issues around access for for really, you know the simple things we take for granted, but like just transportation, having someone available, having a specialist who's familiar with the latest research there for you, um, that can have a tremendous impact on people's lives and, and their outcomes. Patricia, you have something to add?
4: Yeah, we certainly see um, much of what Gisela was just talking about in the early psychosis intervention center, um, the epicenter. Let me have you explain what that is. Sure. Um, It is one of two. Um, programs that specialize in providing interventions for individuals early in their psychotic illness. So in our program uh, here in Tucson, which uh, has been in existence since 2010, we provide services to individuals as young as 15 years old. We encourage parents to help bring their children to our program as early as possible because we know that early intervention is in fact most effective. What uh, uh, was just mentioned in terms of access to care, this is a specialized program. And until last year, we were the only such program in Arizona. And in fact, families would travel not just from Northern Arizona as far as Flagstaff to come down here to Tucson, but we've had uh, families that relocated from other states because a program for early intervention in psychosis was not available for their children.
1: Gisela, I'm going to direct this one at you again. Um, there, There's a connection
5: between trauma and mental illness, as I understand it. Can you flesh that out? So um, sort of from a from a qualitative standpoint, it is something that we saw come up over and over again in the documentary. All of our participants um, had had traumatic experiences growing up, and um talked about them very openly and candidly. Um, And we also, we spoke with a genetics researcher for the documentary who explained um, that, you know, even though we talk about the role of genes, and there's a lot of studies around genetics and and mental illness, your environmental factors, the things that happen to you, the things that, that you're exposed to, play a role as well. So trauma increases the likelihood that someone will develop a mental illness later on. Now, how that actually happens, I would probably leave to Ole or Patricia. And actually, everyone at the table is nodding. So this is something everybody (laughs) has has a point
1: to make about. We'll go to you next, Ole. Yeah,
3: well, I uh, think I want to tie it back to what uh, Angel said last, that as the uh, providers and the patients often speak different languages, as I think the the language you used. And, you know, this is exactly why we often miss the kind of story that I think Gisela referred to. If the doctor starts talking a few seconds into the patient has said the first word, we'll never get the patient a chance to tell their story. And if we let the patient tell their stories and if we listen and verify that we heard correctly, which is another problem, uh, before we jump to a list that lists symptoms and to try to pick a medication, we will almost always hear of traumatic experiences in a wide variety of ways. And they don't lend themselves necessarily to a neat classification. They are sometimes, in fact, physical experiences of being beaten. And, uh, but what does that emotionally do to the person? They may be emotional experiences in the first place, a, a parent that was not available to the child at Critical moments in their lives. We only know this if we let the patient talk and if we listen to the patient. And. Doctors, in particular, are very much trained in active modes and asking to find out about symptoms. And you know, there's a lot to be said for that. But in order to really get to know a patient, especially in psychiatry, as we discussed very early on with the diagnoses being, at best, like guideposts, we really need to understand a patient in their totality. And we can only do that by tuning in to the language they speak.
1: Patricia, as you work with patients, and students in the University of Arizona Department of Psychiatry and patients in the epicenter. What's your experience with this?
4: The experience of trauma um, is unfortunately um, a very frequent one with uh, individuals that I deal with who uh, have any kind of mental health disorder. It is abuse. um, Often abuse and neglect is often a, a reason Um, for this trauma and uh, it is so devastating uh, and affects people's not just their mental um, health but also their physical health. We know that from research um, the experience of uh, abuse and neglect um, can have long-reaching, far-reaching effects on a person's health. Um, well into their adulthood. It can lead to increased blood pressure. It can lead to increased um, disease processes, including cancer. But obviously also for um, the mental health of a person, trying to deal with the experience of trauma is something that most people carry with them for the rest of their lives.
1: Angel, you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder as a teenager. Um, what's your experience? What, what do you share in this topic?
2: First, let me say that mental illnesses are traumatic events. It is traumatic to wake up every single day with just this intense confidence that I can get things done, yet also understand inside that there's something, an illness, a chance that my mind might betray me, that there's just this constant knowledge that there's something else that might totally rock the boat for me at any moment. However, when I was 23, so it was a few years after being diagnosed as bipolar, I quit um, going to all of my biomedicine, quit all of my psych meds, and I just was fed up. Not, my symptoms were not being addressed with my bipolar therapy. I was disassociating a lot. I was experiencing fugue states, so I was really detached from reality. It was essentially that I was es- escaping. It was a coping skill to escape what had become a really um, kind of rocky existence in order to... And I, and I couldn't recall what happened. I was not entirely myself. And... um would have gaps of time missing from my understanding of reality. And I went to a trauma therapist because that indicated that I had had some trauma but in my mind the only trauma I'd ever experienced was being diagnosed as bipolar that is what I thought was the most impactful thing that had happened to me and then in going we fleshed out the fact I was like oh yeah you know well I was also sexually abused when I was five and six by you know a cousin who was living with us you know oh okay well yes that is traumatic angel like this this did impact he was like oh well I was also violently raped when I was in Morocco oh yes that is a trauma you know this is something you should pay attention to and those two things had not really just um, been targeted by any of my prior psychiatrists, by any of my prior therapists, had not addressed them. And to me, the most traumatic thing was just having a mental illness itself. Like, And so it wasn't until I addressed those traumas that my bipolar therapy was able to fall in line, and I was able to get you know things more sorted out.
0: Mental health touches every person in our community. As we explore the topic, you can find resources online at azpm.org notbroken if you or someone you know needs help. You can also see more on Arizona Public Media's new documentary, Not Broken. It debuts tonight on PBS 6 at 9 p.m. and explores the challenges and hopes of seven young people living with mental illness. We'll be back with more of the conversation after this break. Thank you for listening. We're exploring mental health in our community today. We now return to our conversation about this complex issue in Southern Arizona. Dr. Zoley Teenhouse and Patricia Harrison-Monroe are talking with reporter Gisela Tellis and Angel, who was first diagnosed with a mental illness at age 16. Andrea Kelly begins.
1: Patricia, I want to ask you this next question or start off the conversation with you on this next question. Um, Again, our questions came from our audience. What's the connection between suicide and mental illness in youth?
4: In part, a level, a certain level of impulsiveness that exists uh, due to um, the level of brain development that is not complete until the early twenties is something that um, puts youth at a particular high risk because they don't necessarily process the consequences of their actions. Um, While we know that children as young as five or six um, attempt and um, successfully um, follow through with suicide, um, it is usually and primarily adolescents that uh, attempt uh, and follow through with suicide. In the moment, um, their sense of um, hopelessness and their sense of um, not having somebody who will help them with um, the problems that they're um, dealing with uh, can lead them to very impulsive um, actions that can, can result in their death. However, some adolescents certainly um, spend time planning for um, a suicide and um, are very meticulous about following through with um, identifying means, identifying lethal means, uh, and and saying goodbye to others. We know that um, most people who commit suicide um, have in fact told somebody that they had plans to do so. And so with um, individuals who are young, who are suffering from a mental illness, it may be as overwhelming as um, as, uh, how Angel described it, that 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 was the most traumatic experience, being diagnosed with a mental illness and having a sense that your life is over, that there's really no hope. And Ole?
3: Yeah, I, uh, I think this is a very important point that uh, Patricia raises, is that uh, suicide too is not just a homogeneous uh, thing. I mean, it occurs in different ways and the impulsiveness, the impulsive suicide attempt or su- for completed suicide is is uh, qu- very often uh, the, the um, presenting problem in youth uh, because of the uh, Immaturity of the brain development—if you say there is an equivalent in adults when who often uh, attempt suicide while they're intoxicated and lower the in, the threshold uh, to, to doing self-harm that way—the uh, the planned suicide is. Very commonly encountered in a diagnosable or diagnosed mental illness, and th- those are the ones that uh, often healthcare providers actually get a warning about that. And this is again a problem where it's the the need for us to listen to what the patient tells us and then respond, and not just brush it under the table or said you know, look what you have to live for and leave it at that. Uh, sometimes health. Healthcare professionals, if not to mention the lay public, I was very disturbed by comments that suggest suicidal ideation. and think, oh, I should not you know, uh, probe anymore, maybe I'm triggering something. I would urge anybody who hears a friend, a child, a parent for that matter, mention the possibility of suicide to stay with that person. And I don't mean physically necessarily, but listen to them and find out what is behind that. You will not suggest suicide to somebody who doesn't want to kill themselves by just inquiring
4: about suicide.
1: So you're saying you can't make it worse? Correct. Go ahead, Patricia.
4: In fact, I would say you can make it better because by being the person to raise the possibility of suicide, it can help the individual who might be considering it to actually begin talking about it. It's, it can be a freeing experience yeah. that it is allowed and not taboo and that there is, in fact, somebody who is interested and who is willing to help.
3: Right. This comes back to Angel, like so much here at the table. <laughs> when she mentioned that shame is such an important issue or such a problematic issue for young people to come out with their problems and to th- even think about suicide, it can be, you know, if shame is the right word of it, can be a very pro- monumental issue to share with anybody. And for a parent in this case to bring it up can be a liberating experience, mm-hmm. as Patricia says.
2: Angel. Yes, I agree. And the fact that the response from someone who is told that this person is suicidal is that is what is most important. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why suicide in teenagers is is more common, or more prevalent. Um, For instance, when I was 12, I was when I was first suicidal and I told my middle school basketball coach and he said, oh, it's okay. It's just a feeling you'll get over it. And I was like, dude, I just told you I want to die. You know, a little bit more feedback or something would be helpful. Um, And then I didn't tell anyone again until I was 16. So it was, you know, four years of very tenuous times where I almost, you know, there were some very close calls. And uh, I'm thankful that I had a strong family support system who, once I did tell, were immediately there for me. But um, that's why documentaries like this are so important. Why programs like what NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, does in high schools, you know, things where we're able to kind of say, this is the response that is necessary or, hey, kid, this is where you can get some help. This is honestly one of the reasons why social media is important because they can reach out to people who maybe they don't have to see face to face. Um, So the, the response is really critical when someone actually has the guts to say that they're thinking of ending their life.
1: Angel, when you go to high schools and talk about mental health as part of your work with NAMI and talk about your own experiences with bipolar disorder, do you specifically address suicide?
2: I do. Um, I had to push to be able to talk about this because it is one of those things that honestly there is still a stigma against, I mean, in schools they don't necessarily want to talk about it. I'm not allowed to talk about um, the prevalence of rape or childhood sexual abuse. I'm not allowed to use those kind of words, which is a battle I'm fighting right now in order to be able to do so because I do understand that in the individual classroom with 28 kids in front of me, some of them will have experienced it. Um, However, speaking about suicide, we definitely address it very directly because Um, it is one of those things, like, like Oli said, if someone is speaking about it, stay there with them. If it's physical, if it's on the phone, whatever it might be, because it is important for them to know that they are not alone. One of the least, uh, effective things anyone has ever said to me when I was considering suicide, uh, was, oh, but you have so much to live for. Like that's, that's a platitude that is really a response by someone who doesn't understand quite how to deal with such a big issue, which is a perfectly normal response, but, um, there, there does need to be a little bit more um, advising about what is actually more effective. Patricia, do you talk to people about how to deal with this?
4: Yes, certainly. Parents, for example? I, I talk to parents a lot because um, it is probably one of the most frightening things to hear that your child is considering um, to kill themselves. Um, the possibility is just unimaginable for many adults, and so um, very often they are they hope that this is a misinterpretation. I think one of the reasons why it's so important to go and speak in schools to this topic is because, um, again, children and adolescents are very easily influenced. And when such an event has happened, um, really, uh, the that entire individual's peer group becomes uh, at much higher risk because many of the young people that I talk to will point to someone who has killed themselves uh, and say, but I looked up to that person. That person seemed to have it all together. So if that was the appropriate response for my friend, it probably makes sense for me as well. And
5: I, th- I think it's really important to emphasize just how common this is. Mm -hmm. So this is the second leading cause of death among young people. And so if we're not talking about it, there's a lot at stake.
1: There's a societal stigma attached to mental illness and a connection with violence. How do we combat that stigma? What are the facts about this? What do people need to know?
3: I think the most important thing is information, uh, making it abundantly clear that violent behavior is no more common among mentally ill patients or people than people without a diagnosis of a mental illness. That, in fact, there is a lot of evidence in the pertinent research that mentally ill people are much more likely to be victims of violent behavior. The, the issue is if you have a mass shooting and that person was also diagnosed with a mental illness, then people tend to generalize from that. And that is the problem that we have in uh, to, to combat here. Because yes, of course, mental illness doesn't protect you from becoming a violent person. But it is not a predictor. In fact, the prediction of violent behavior is, is very difficult. Uh, as the uh, documentary shows very uh, I think very impressively with one of the experts speaking there uh, and the the only way I'm aware of in reducing the stigma is uh, education for the public at large and I think there's hope that that works because we have been able uh, resolving other stigmas in this country uh, by uh, engaging in active educational outreach.
1: And angel, I brought up the stigma of a connection to violence, but of course that's just one example of a stigma. Whats What types of stigma have you faced?
2: Some of the stigmas that I've faced, not only you know having to tell people that homicidal is not the same as you know mental illness, homicidal is not the same as bipolar, that is definitely a subject that comes up quite often with mass shootings. Um, But it would be the idea of someone honestly being um, completely inept. And I think that is one reason why I've been willing to kind of come forward and speak more about my own experience as having bipolar because it surprises people. Um, most often, especially people who are familiar with the things that I've done in my life, as far as, you know, I graduated high school in three years to so go to a top 20 school and study in Europe for a year. And then I've lived on four continents and learned four, five languages and written 11 novels. So I've done some pretty, you know, impressive things. I work in East Africa right now and travel there a few times a year. So it's, really nice to be able to say you know oh well i have all of these things all of you know i i can show you that i'm a successful member of society who functions a good majority of the time and is able to do things that make a true impact and yet i also have a mental illness and people are like oh well i guess not only are you a normal person but you also are capable and that is one thing that i think definitely mental illness people just immediately assume um unpredictable which frankly you can't argue sometimes i am unpredictable as far so it is one of those things that's difficult i can understand where the roots of many of the stigmas are because when i am less stable it's like okay yes there are there is a relevant fact to this but um the ineptitude and you know the the lack of competence and maybe the lack of intelligence is also something i like to kind of thwart and
1: patricia you work with people who are experiencing psychotic disorders like schizophrenia those are
4: among the most highly stigmatized aren't they Absolutely. And, and I would say that the media plays uh, a really uh, important role in both perpetuating that stigma, but also I think with um, films such as yours now, um, you'll be able to combat some of those uh, preconceptions, uh, I would say whenever there is some kind of mass casualty, one of the first things that reporters generally ask or comment on is whether or not the individual has had a history of mental health um, treatment. Um, Unfortunately, that perception continues to um, uh, be proliferated by the fact that, in fact, some people who are in the media um, due to uh, these events have had some kind of mental health treatment. However, I think even um, at our legislative uh, level, it is important that um, the treatment of mental illness is perceived as important in and of itself. And all too often in my experience, both here as well as in New York, um, it takes a a very um, unfortunate event Um, that involves a mentally ill person for the legislature to think that possibly additional funding for specific mental health services um, is needed. And that is um, really unfortunate because uh, mental illness obviously is uh, part of our lives uh, every day and not just when somebody gets killed.
1: Gisela, did you have something to add?
5: I do. Um, I think that, you know, as a member of the media and as somebody who reports on mental health, it pains me every time we have a mass casualty, a a tragic event like this, and immediately people start speculating about the mental health of the perpetrators. Um, Because the science doesn't back that up. I mean, we traveled across the country to talk to a leading expert in mass shootings, and he told us there's no basis for thinking that somebody with a mental health issue with a mental health challenge is going to be more likely to be violent. I mean, the, the facts just don't back that up. Um, and yet we see this narrative over and over again. One of the ways that we wanted to combat that was actually to specifically feature and include among the young people who share their stories in the documentary, individuals who have psychotic illnesses. So um, people who have schizophrenia or who have certain, a certain one type of bipolar disorder um, who experience psychosis because we wanted to show them as, you know, not this scary idea. of a person um, who is just like bound to do something tragic but actually as a rich vibrant complex person who is so much more than whatever their diagnosis is
2: frankly One of the things when I ask uh, friends who have mental health conditions, when I ask them, well, what is a positive that comes out of having a mental illness? You know, it's so easy to say all of the ways that it's either debilitating on a daily basis or, you know, just has general challenges or has really derailed one's life. Um, People are always like, well, I'm more compassionate. And that is one thing that I think pretty much anyone who has a mental illness is able to say is that, well, the fact that I've skated that line with life and death with just my own life, you know, makes me value life more. It makes me more compassionate, it makes me want to help people more. And so I think that just is completely, you know, um, contradicts any type of violent tendencies that might be perpetrated by the media.
4: You had asked about um, the connection with psychosis and and, and violence, and certainly in our program what we find is that um, the young people who may be suffering with auditory hallucinations and command hallucinations are much more likely to have Um, voices tell them to hurt themselves versus voices telling them to hurt other people. So when we have young people who are hallucinating, our concern is much more that they will be harmful to themselves. Angel, you've accomplished a lot in
1: your life already. You've written 13 books, which is astounding, traveled internationally. What's next for you? What do you feel like your future holds?
2: So I will continue to work with the international development nonprofit that I work with. It's based here in Tucson, but also works in East Africa. So that's really exciting. My second book is coming out next month. So that's another good thing. I've been able to tour around this the last few months and run workshops in libraries for young adult authors and uh, really kind of give still the message about mental illness because the book does have a lot of behavioral health components in it. Um, so I'm just going to be continuing to write in that way and hopefully show myself as a strong advocate for, for mental illness, either through working with entrepreneurs in East Africa or with teenagers here in the U.S.
1: Thank you, Angel, for sharing your firsthand experiences navigating the world of mental health. Ole Teenhouse and Patricia Harrison-Monroe, thanks for sharing your expertise. And Gisela Tellis, our audience gets to hear and see your stories all the time, but your participation here offers a different look at this topic. Thanks to you all for joining us for this very important conversation.
0: Thank you for listening to this special edition of Arizona Spotlight. There are resources at azpm.org notbroken. For more stories, join us for Arizona Public Media's new documentary, Not Broken. It debuts at 9 p.m. on PBS6. In the film, producers Tom Clesby and Gisela Tellis present an unflinching yet hopeful portrait of youth living with mental health challenges. The participants represent a range of backgrounds and experiences. Some are youth of color. Some identify as LGBTQ. Some have survived sexual abuse, poverty, bullying. But despite the obstacles they've faced, all are fighting to live their dreams. I'm Mark McLemore. The show was produced by Tom Klesby with recording engineer Jim Blackwood and executive producer Peter Michaels.